Let's pray together. Father of mercy, we come before you thankful for your gifts and your care of us, uh, for the ways in which you have taken care of all of our needs. And so we return to you this morning what we have received from your hand. And we ask that these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings, that they would be used in order that your kingdom would be revealed, in order that the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would be proclaimed to every tribe, to every tongue throughout this world. And Father, as we pray that the gospel would go forward to all tribes and all nations, we pray that that same gospel would be proclaimed to us this morning. We pray, Father, that as we sit beneath your word, that you would remind us this morning that we're really all the same because we are all far more broken than we could ever possibly imagine. And so, God, we thank you for the wonderful good news of the gospel, that in Jesus we are also far more loved, far more secure, far more approved of than we could ever have dreamed possible. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would help us with eyes of faith to see our crucified and risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. In case you missed the announcement earlier, uh, normally we have children's church during the sermon, but we've decided to cancel that for just this week. Um, And so... uh, Children, sit tight. I'll I'll try not to run too long. Um, If you take out your insert, uh, you'll see the passage uh, that I'm going to read for you that the sermon will be based on. It's from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through verse 53, the very last words of Luke's gospel account. So let's begin reading together in, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 36. Follow along with me. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city 
until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I want you to think with me about something as we, uh, as we prepare to look briefly at this passage from Luke 24, and <clears throat> I hope that you're ready because we're starting with the, uh, the pedal to the metal, full throttle. See, I want you to think about Jesus. I want you to think about Jesus, the revolutionary king that he was. Jesus came to start a revolution to lead a revolution. I mean, you think about it. There, were, there was the religious establishment, right? The Pharisees and the scribes. And they were so very clearly on the very far right of the political, religious, and ethical system. But then you had the occupying Roman government who was so very clearly on the very far left of things. These two groups couldn't agree about anything. It was like Fox News and CNN going head to head, right? They couldn't agree about anything, but they fully embraced one another in full agreement about Jesus, right? We have to get rid of him. Both groups were saying, we have to shut him up and silence him Forever, we need to kill him. How did Jesus manage to alienate both of these sides of the spectrum, right? How did he turn both of these groups against him? The very far right, the conservative religious establishment, and the very far left, the liberal occupying government. Because it didn't matter what side of the aisle you were on. Jesus came to turn everything upside down and on its head. He came to start a revolution. But when they came together in agreement and killed him, they didn't stop the revolution. They unleashed it because Jesus triumphed over the grave. Tom Skinner preached at a missions conference in the late 1970s, and he confessed in that sermon that he often thought of Jesus as a sissy, middle-class man with soft hands, as he put it. But then he said he discovered that, quote, the Christ who leaped out of the pages of the New Testament was nobody's sissy, nobody's effeminate. Rather, he was a gutsy, contemporary, radical revolutionary with hair on his chest and dirt under his fingernails. If you remember the story of Jesus' crucifixion, there were two men on trial, a political revolutionary, a zealot named Barabbas, and the man who claimed to be the revolutionary king, Jesus. Tom Skinner said in that sermon, it's very easy to stop a Barabbas, right? You let him go, and he'll round up some more guerrillas, and they'll start another riot, And then you go and arrest him again. And then he said this, quote, But how 
do you stop Jesus? They took and nailed him to a cross. They took and buried him, rolled a stone over his grave, wiped their hands and said, that's one radical who will never disturb again. We've gotten rid of him. We'll never hear any more, more of his words of revolution. Three days later, Jesus Christ pulled off one of the greatest political coups of all time. He got up out of the grave. When he arose from the dead, the Bible now calls him the second man, the new man, the leader of a new creation, a Christ who has come to overthrow the existing order and to establish a new order that is not built on man. See, to, to impress and drive home this revolution to his, to his readers, Luke gives us what's called a literary triptych. See, a triptych is an early form of Christian art. It was a three-paneled painting, and each panel uh, had a different scene, but all the scenes came together to tell a story and to make a point. Luke, if you read his gospel account, he gives us three Easter scenes, not one. First, there were the, the women who came and they found the empty tomb. And second, there were, Jesus had approached two discouraged and downtrodden disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And then finally, and thirdly, this story that we read. It, it's very cool. It's brilliant. Uh, purely on the merits of literary analysis, right? But here's what Luke is doing in these stories and why it should matter to you today. He is showing us the launch. He's showing us the unleashing, the genesis of Jesus' revolution. He's showing us all of these people's stories to say, this Easter story, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it radically revolutionized all of these people's lives. Changed their lives dramatically, changed their lives forever. See, Luke wants us to know that this same Easter story that revolutionized them, it can revolutionize us too. It can turn your world and your life upside down forever. Long introduction, I know, but don't worry. There are just two brief points that I want to make this morning, and there are these. The Easter story gives us reasons to rejoice, and Jesus shows us preaching that changes. Okay, first, reasons to rejoice. I, I hope you realize this, that the Bible doesn't encourage in you a blind faith or wishful thinking. What the Bible does, in fact, is give us hard, concrete, real, historical reasons to believe and to rejoice in the good news of the gospel. See, the end of Luke's book, it, it's actually piling up reasons to rejoice in the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. And it's taking a severe biting of the tongue, if you know me, to avoid getting into all those details. But Christianity is unique in that all of its claims are dependent on real, actual, historical facts. Right? In other words, Christianity at its core isn't a philosophy of life. It isn't a value or ethical system at its core. It's not a way of life at its core. Right? Here's the claim of Christianity. A real event 
happened in a real place at a specific time. In real concrete space and time. And that something that happened changes everything. Right? And if you take it into the middle of your life and you trust it, you have to hold on. Hold on tightly because it won't just make you more moral or nicer. It will revolutionize your life. It will turn everything upside down and inside out. It will make you brand new from the inside out. That's the claim of Christianity. A real person, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God in the flesh. He came, he lived, and he died upon a cross, and three days later, rose victorious. If that really happened, then nothing can be the same anymore. It's what we call in the business a game changer, right? If Jesus got up out of the grave. There's this fascinating phrase near the middle of our passage in verse 41 where Luke writes that the disciples were disbelieving for joy. Fascinating. But for the moment, just realize they didn't believe in the resurrection initially. Right? Verse 37, they thought they were seeing a spirit or a ghost. And guess what? The disciples on the road to Emmaus, the very reason they were downtrodden and discouraged, right, was because they weren't looking for a, resu- a resurrection. Right? They were saying, he's dead. And the revolution must be over now. The women who went to the empty tomb, they certainly weren't looking for a resurrection, right? They went to anoint his dead body. And this, all of this at least means that we have to put away our chronological snobbery that says, oh, they were so primitive. They believed in things like resurrections back then. No, it didn't fit into their worldview at all. They didn't believe it. And then Luke tells us how, how Jesus let these disciples inspect his body. Touch me and see. Here are the nail prints. Here's my flesh. They touched his warm flesh. They felt the joints in his fingers, the bones in his hands. They put their fingers into his nail prints, and they felt his pulse beating. It wasn't a fragment of their, a figment of their imaginations. It was evidence, right? It was a reason There's this place in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he writes, Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Here's what Paul is saying. Go find some of these people and ask them. Many of them are still alive, and you can go talk to them about what they saw. A real historical event that changes everything has happened. And what about what I think are the weirdest verses of this passage, verses 41 through 43. Jesus asked them for something to eat, and they gave him some broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Listen, the only way that weird little detail gets in that story is because it was etched in their memories. After this, there had to have been some conversations that went something like this. Do you, you remember how we thought he was a ghost? And then he ate our supper. He ate our fish. There's more that could be said about all these reasons that Luke is piling up at the end of his gospel account. uh, And also in the other two stories. But come back to this fascinating phrase in verse 41. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. 
I have to do it this morning, uh, The Lord of the Rings. Um, it, was very, it was hard for me this week, when I was thinking about this phrase, to really get my head around this phrase, disbelieved for joy, until I remembered this one specific part in Tolkien's story. And in this story, the hobbits, Frodo and Sam, they had destroyed the evil ring, and they had laid down in despair at all the horrors, hiding their eyes from death, Tolkien wrote. But then just a couple of paragraphs later, Sam Gamgee, the hobbit, he awoke. And when he awoke, he saw Gandalf the wizard. And this is what Tolkien wrote. Sam lay back and stared with open mouth. And for a moment, listen to this, between bewilderment and great joy, disbelieving for joy. At la- he goes on, at last he gasped, Tolkien writes, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then this question, is everything sad going to come untrue? There were the disciples, and they were caught in a moment between bewilderment and great joy, pinching themselves, disbelieving for joy. Why? Because they were seeing with their own eyes. They were feeling with their own hands. The answer to Sam Gamgee's question, is everything sad going to come untrue? The historical resurrection of Jesus shouts a resounding yes to that question. And because of it, you have reasons to rejoice if you bring this historical event into the very center of your life. I don't want to be irreverent in any way, but enough of us are so guilt and shame-ridden that I want you to hear it this way. The resurrection's reasons to rejoice can set you free to laugh at sin. Listen, Jesus showed up, and the very first thing he said was peace to you. Not, I'll show you how to get peace. Not an ethical system or a philosophy that will bring you peace if you practice it. He came proclaiming peace. He was saying something concrete and something real happened. There was an event. There was a crucifixion and a resurrection. And the meaning of that event to you is that you now have peace. The Son of God hung upon a cross and died the death we deserved. And justice demands that God will never ask for another payment. He came out of the tomb victorious over sin and death. And I'm not suggesting in the slightest here that we think lightly of sin. But I am suggesting that you need to learn to laugh when guilt and shame rise up in your life to mock you. It is finished, was Jesus' cry on the cross. Peace to you, he proclaimed when he rose from the grave, victorious in your place. Another thing I want to mention here before we move on is that part of our rejoicing has to be in seeing that we can finally begin letting our regrets go. I turned 40 a few months ago, and I was told by my doctor um, 
that I have arthritis in my neck, that I have a degenerating disc in my lower back, my blood pressure is far too high, and that that I now need reading glasses. Um, It's been a rough few months uh, (laughs) to the beginning of my my 40th year. Um, The icing on my birthday cake was very clear. You are falling apart at the seams, right? And you add to this that I, I feel like I'm now old enough to begin realizing that there will be some things in this life that I will never do. There will be things that I want to do in this life, but I will never accomplish. There, there will be things I want that I'll never be able to afford. There will be places that I want to visit that I will never get to visit and experience in this life. Right? There, there are opportunities that I feel I have missed in this life. You know what a historical bodily resurrection means? It means that one day, everything sad will come untrue. Right? I'll get a new perfect body. And Jesus will bring a new and perfect, unbroken new heavens and new earth. And you know, that makes it okay that I won't get to some things in this life. That makes it okay. That makes it even joyful to sacrifice and to deny myself some things for the sake of others. I can do that if I know that one day, someday, even all my regrets in this life will only add to my joy in the next. You remember what C.S. Lewis' character at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia said when Aslan was bringing the new Narnia? This is what he said. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. A real historical resurrection says you have every reason to hope for that day, to rejoice that one day, someday, home itself will come to you. Second, preaching that changes. Jesus does some pretty intense and thorough preaching to his disciples in verses 44 through 45. Everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He was showing them not how one verse or a handful of verses in the Old Testament were about him, but how it was all about him, how it was all fulfilled by him. And here's a little taste of that. Jesus is the true and better, the fulfillment of everything Adam was meant to be. You see, where Adam failed his test in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, Jesus fulfilled everything Adam was meant to be. He is also the true and better fulfillment of Abel, who though innocently slain, his blood cries out, from the ground, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. He was the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father, but sacrificed by his father. He was the true and better and fulfillment of Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed him and sold him, and he uses his power to save them. He is the final Moses who stands in the gap between his people and their Lord. He is the fulfillment of King David, 
whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. The true and better fulfillment of Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly palace, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. He is the final Jonah thrown into the very storm of God's justice so that you and I could be brought into the calm of the Father's love. He is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He is the true priest, prophet, and king, and temple, the final sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread of heaven. He is the fulfillment of the entire Bible because the entire Bible is about him. But why all this preaching? Why all this preaching when they had just experienced, when they had just touched and seen the risen Lord? Kent Hughes puts it this way. One of the reasons Jesus taught them from Scripture was that he did not want them to rest their belief in his resurrection on their personal experience alone. Their faith and your faith shouldn't be grounded in experience alone. Experience is important. But our faith is grounded in God's written revelation. I hope you get get where I'm going with this. We have this, the written revelation of God, to touch and see, as Jesus commands in this passage. Peter, one of the apostles, he wrote and said that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he was writing about this specific experience that he had had when he was with James and John, and they were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in all of his glory. And maybe some of you remember that story. He goes on in his retelling of that experience in Second Peter one seventeen, And he says, For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him, from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So what does Peter write next? How does he follow that up? He says this, And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. They saw it, they heard it with their... Their ears, they saw it with their own eyes, right? They heard God himself speak from this cloud, but Christianity isn't a religion grounded in experience. Your feelings and your experience are important, but they are shakable. This word is unshakable. Touch and see, it is all about Jesus, person and work in concrete space and time. I want to do more, but I've got to hurry. I want you to at least notice that Jesus' preaching was Christ-centered in verses 44 through 45, but also that it's gospel-centered in verses 46 through 47. There Jesus is saying that the Bible is all about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, the cross, and the empty grave. I get to serve on a few committees where we interview and we hire men who are going into the gospel ministry. And it's a very cool job, um, and a question I, I always try to ask is, if, if we were to hire you, um, which you've got you to gotta, you know, keep them guessing at that point, but uh, make them sweat, but you know, I say, if we, were to hire, if we were to hire you after five years of ministry, how would you want someone to summarize your ministry? In other words, what would you want someone to say 
this is what your ministry was really all about. And you know, I ask that question because it's a question that we're constantly asking ourselves here at Grace Community Church. Because we are certainly not about the biggest and coolest events or the biggest programming for children or the best buildings or even the greatest music. And I think we have the best music in Memphis, maybe the Mid-South, I don't know. Um, But that's not what we're about, right? Spend five years here and I want you to see that Grace Community Church is all about Jesus and all about the gospel. Spend five years here, and we want you to be able to say that Jesus is more beautiful and more lovely and more glorious than you had previously thought. Spend five years here, and we want you to be able to say that the gospel is sweeter, it is freer, it is more sufficient for you than you first thought. The only preaching that will deeply change and revolutionize your life is preaching that is all about Jesus and all about the gospel. You know how we often play kind of what-if games with ourselves? We, we, what if I had a million dollars? What if, um, what if I could do anything I wanted to do, right? Or, or maybe negatively we say, what would I do if I could finally get rid of this problem that is burdening and weighing me down? We play those kind of games with ourselves. The kind of preaching that will change your life deeply is preaching that will ask you, what if this is true? What if the resurrection really happened in concrete space and time? What if the gospel assures me that I am more broken than I imagine, but also more deeply loved than I could have ever dared hope dream? What if Jesus, the revolutionary king, really was the fulfillment of the scriptures and came to die for me? It's more than a game changer. It's a life changer, right? And there are two things it should revolutionize about us immediately, very quickly. Verse 52, it should make us fall down and worship. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. I'm not saying we should, you know, sing louder or anything like that. Although singing, singing can certainly be a part of our worship. To worship something is to bring that something or that someone into the very center of your life and see it as the ultimate beauty that can alone satisfy the deepest desires of your life. If Jesus really did this for you, was a real person who took the whip and, and the thorns and the nails for you, if he came out of the grave to proclaim peace to you and me, though we never lifted a stone to accomplish it ourselves, if that's true, what choice do you have, really, but to change everything in your life and fall down in worship? Second and last, it should move us out in mission. In all three of these Easter stories that Luke gives us in our little literary triptych, they end with Jesus sending his people out, in, out to witness and in mission. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. When the centrifugal force of God's love hits you square in the center of your being, when you get hit by the centrifugal force of His love that sent His only begotten Son out 
to live and to die for you and to really be raised from the dead for you, when that centrifugal force hits you, it revolutionizes you from your heart that is so radically turned in on itself to being free, to move out, to love others, and to proclaim this good news of Jesus in word and deed. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' lifeless body was lifted and carried to a grave. And it was sealed with a rock. We'll never hear any more of his words of revolution, they thought. But then Sunday came. And because Sunday came, nothing can ever be the same. The revolutionary king has been raised from the dead and is seated now at the right hand of his father. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news this morning. That Jesus, he came. He came in the flesh. And he came to live the life we should have lived but could not live. He came to die the death we should have died. Father, we pray that this morning our eyes will be lifted to see that our Savior is no longer dead, but He has been raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And Father, we pray that this good news would set us free, that we would learn even to laugh at sin when, it, when the guilt and the shame rises up to mock us. We pray that the hope of a real physical resurrection will free us to let our regrets go in this life. And Father, we pray that we would become your worshipers. That if this is true, then everything has to change about us. And Father, we pray that you would send us out. Send us out into the world to love others. Not as people who are trying to earn your love, but as people who know they are loved. Because Christ himself came. And when he rose from the dead, he proclaimed peace to us. Father, we pray that you would write this good news deeply into our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.